Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thank you for tuning in. You can keep up with us by following our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And be sure to take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. So if that's iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or Google Play, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. Radio Islam family, uh, we've talked about this recently. Um, a brother by the name of Abdullah Beard, he was killed in his home in a raid by Detroit Detroit City, um, their police department. And the community is in a state of shock, a state of grief and mourning. Uh, and of course, his family, he leaves a widow and children. And when these situations, they come up, we are left often with more questions than we have answers. And we're also left with an urge for accountability, an urge uh, a desire for justice. And too often that urge goes unfulfilled, but we still keep trying. So I am uh, honored to be able to uh, have on the phone to talk with us one of those who advocates and agitates uh, and calls for justice and has uh, taken up this cause as the executive director of CARE Michigan Council uh, on American Islamic Relations, uh, Michigan chapter, Imam Daoud Walid, who is joining us by phone to talk about this uh, terrible incident and what what what's going to happen as we move forward. Assalamu alaikum, Imam. Wa alaikum salam, brother Imam. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it is a pleasure. So these types of instances, uh, these are these are unfortunately these these happen far too often. Um, but what does not happen uh, more often enough is to have uh, a competent uh, response uh, that goes beyond simply being emotional. Um, can you give us just give us kind of the uh, the, the framework for how this all uh, came about? Yeah, but before even going to that, let me say that these cases have happened far too frequently uh, across the country in, in Detroit. And I believe in this particular case, one reason why there hasn't been national media attention is because these shootings happen so frequently across the country that uh, I, I believe that the populace and, and many people in the community have simply become numb to, due to the sheer amounts. In regards to the uh, shooting of our brother, Brother Abdullah Beard, also known as Abdullah Abdul Mohammed. Uh, there was a situation here in the city of Detroit in which there was a uh, a, a dispute between some family members. Um, a five-year-old girl had been shot in the process. Uh, it, he, the, the, the girl was not shot by uh, Brother Abdullah Beard. It was shot by uh, someone else. Mm -hmm. And an unfortunate sequence of events uh, came about in which the Detroit police uh, used uh, what I believe very uh, questionable tactics at a questionable time when they decided to descend on the residence in which Brother Abdullah 
uh, was uh, dwelling in uh, at 4.50 a.m. on a Friday morning. So obviously everyone is asleep. They used a, uh, with, with supposedly a no-knock warrant, which we are uh, investigating the nature of that warrant uh, right now, but they claim they use a no-knock warrant to bust down the door. They threw in one of those percussion uh, uh, smoke grenades. Mm -hmm. And then our brother Abdullah uh, was shot 21 times by the Detroit Police Department. Uh, since then, Detroit Police Chief, uh, Chief Craig, has publicly stated that Abdullah was not the, the shooter uh, of the girl. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, he's dead. They claim that he had a, uh, a firearm. Um, when the Detroit police came in with their, uh, with their, you know, their military style uh, tactics, they were wearing uh, body cams. Uh, body cams don't pick up did not pick up Brother Abdullah having any gun. According to the Detroit police, uh, once they went through the door and the shooting started, um, they claimed that uh, after the lights had been turned on, there was a gun next to him. Um, the family has somewhat of a different narrative of what the Detroit police are saying. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're in the process of of uh, we've already filed some things to preserve evidence, uh, and we will be, um, you know, making some conclusions uh, with the family's permission about how we're going to um, move forward, um, including possible legal action. Mm. Now, with regard to how the De uh, Detroit Police Department is responding to this, are the officers involved? Are are they all still on duty right now? Is there an internal investigation going on as well? Well, the Michigan State Police are investigating this issue, not the Detroit Police, but those officers are still on duty as we speak. And I need to put a little perspective into the Michigan State Police coming in to investigate uh, this, uh, this, this uh, shooting is that the Detroit uh, Police um, only a couple of years ago just got from underneath a federal consent decree and if uh, we were to go back, it, it was under a federal consent decree for about a, a decade related to civilian shootings. If we go back uh, just slightly over a decade, the Detroit Police Department led the country per capita in civilian shootings and in a couple of years actually led America in, in the gross total of police shootings. So uh, just to put into in perspective, uh, Detroit is a city with about 800,000 people and more civilians were getting shot in the city of Detroit than somewhere like uh, New York City, which is uh, like seven times, uh, eight times larger in population than, than the city of Detroit. So the, the city, along with mm -hmm. Chicago, are two of the cities with, 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 with the most notorious records for, mm -hmm. for, for shooting uh, civilians. Now, when you mentioned a uh, consent decree, I automatically thought of my hometown, Chicago. Yes. Um, uh, so there is definitely a, a parallel uh, reality that is going on. We're dealing with uh, a high-profile case here right now that's underway with uh, Laquan McDonald. Um, now, this 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 no-knock warrant that was executed, uh, was anyone else in the home uh, at the time? Yes, there were. There were other family members uh, in the home. Um, you know, Brother Abdullah, just to let you all know, um, 
he has a uh, a widow now, and she is a uh, an immigrant from the West African country of Mali. Uh, so he does have a a widow. He did leave uh, some children behind from a previous marriage, but uh, they were not in the house. But there were some other family members uh, there um, who you know are, who are traumatized, you know, by the situation. I was at the the funeral home. Uh, with uh, with the widow and some other um, family members at the day we did the ritual washing. And then just this yesterday on Thursday, we did the, the janazah, which his mother and other uh, distraught family members were there, but they they there were other family members in the house. Mm. Well, I, I know that this there's going to be a great uh, a deal of, of healing uh, and processing that is going to have to take place. Um, in, in the coming days and, and, and months and as time moves forward. Um, is there anything that the Radio Islam listeners can do uh, with regard to supporting, whether it be in amplifying um, uh, any events or, or statements or uh, just just in terms of supporting the family, the, his widow and his children? Well, I would say three things. Uh, the first thing is, Keep the, the family of Brother Abdullah in, in your sincere prayers and your sincere du'a. Um, that is most important because obviously we're a people of faith and we believe in the power of prayer. Uh, so the family definitely needs uh, the sincere du'a of the, of the believing uh, men and believing women. Uh, the second thing is that we will be putting out more information at the appropriate time, and at that time there will be a call of action or a call to support at that time. Um, the family has uh, asked us for, as of right now, not to uh, make any further public statements about some of the specific things that we found out and been looking at. Um, you know, and actually I've turned down some mainstream media interviews, including NPR, uh, due to the, this consideration of the family. I'm this interview that I'm granting you right now, Brother Imam, is just a courtesy of you being you know, a leader in the community. But there will be more information that's put out in call of action and other ways of supporting uh, both morally and monetarily as far as the legal action. But the third thing is is that there is a, uh, a launch good uh, campaign that is uh, going on right now, and we are asking people to support that. It can be found on launchgood.com, um, and, it's, there's, uh, and you can also see the hashtag uh, uh, justice, justice for Abdullah Beard, which is on uh, Twitter. But if you go on LaunchGood, uh, people can donate, uh, and that money will go to the, uh, the widow and the children to help them uh, during this, uh, this difficult time. Uh, so we definitely encourage uh, the listeners to, to, to donate to that fund. Well, Imam Daoud, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, and you, uh, the believers, his family, uh, and, and may Allah bless uh, Brother Abdullah Beard uh, with, with, with Jenna. Uh, but we, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And we will definitely be um, standing by to do whatever we can to assist. Thank you very much. And may Allah reward you for the important work that uh, you continue to do with this radio show. Amen. Thank you, man. All right, Radio Islam family, that was the executive director of the Michigan chapter of the Council on Islamic American Relations, Imam Daoud Walid. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam, and we're on WCEV 1450 AM.
Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we've got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America in your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, if you are new to Radio Islam, if you are just tuning in, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, whether you're on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Google Play. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. Don't miss anything else. Radio Islam family, we spoke with Imam Dawood Walid uh, in the first segment about the uh, the the recent um, and just horrific death of Brother Abdullah Beard uh, at the hands of the Detroit Police Department. And although we don't have all of the answers, we will certainly be standing by, we'll be making dua, we'll be praying for the strength of the family uh, and, and praying that the community is steadfast and that justice is served. One of the things that uh, comes to mind for me is the the just the the damage, the irreparable damage that can take place with these no-knock warrants. Now, sure, they have a place, and uh, for those who are in law enforcement, they understand the value of being able to catch uh, someone by surprise, uh, especially if you consider that person to be an armed and dangerous type of individual. But this is not that case. And the problem is, uh, that I see, is that when you get it wrong, that lives change. When you get it wrong, children are left without a father. When you get it wrong, a wife is left without a husband, a community left without a brother, a friend, a mentor. There are tremendous tremendous implications uh, tremendous consequences of getting it wrong now as you may have heard Detroit not very long ago uh, just came from under a consent decree federal consent decree because it had more shootings more civilian shootings by police per capita than any 
where else in the United States of America, anywhere else, we're talking about a city of 800,000, and you put that up against a city, uh, Chicago metropolitan area, we're looking at, what, 2.7 or 8 million. Los Angeles in the millions. New York, 8, 9 million. San Francisco, I mean, you just you start going around the country and looking at all these other places that have more people, but on the average, per capita, Detroit, with a population under a million, leading the country. So that tells you, that's a sign that there's a, there's a problem uh, in policy and procedure in attitude, in leadership, there's a problem, and citizens are paying the price. So the other problem here is, as I was Googling, I was looking for more information. I found some information, uh, but it wasn't really, it didn't really outline what took place and what happened to, to Brother Abdullah Beer. It was everything that led up to it. It was the the, the terrible and unfortunate uh, death of a five-year-old girl, uh, which was also a relative, which was, uh, I believe it was his, his, uh, his niece, his great-niece. And, but nothing with regard to his, his death, very little. There was a, a police, there was a press release that was given. Uh, there was a statement made, which basically says that he was reaching for a gun or raising a gun. Um, you know, and I don't want to rehash what has already been said, what uh, Imam Daoud has, has already uh, explained to us, but more importantly to to have us keep in mind that the family is going through a tremendously, tremendously difficult time. So uh, our prayers are very much needed, uh, and we will wait to find out what those next steps are going to be. Now, another aspect of why there has not been as much media outcry, say, in comparison to uh, Laquan McDonald, whose trial is going on, uh, taking place now, where officer, police officer Jason Van Dyke uh, waiting to see what is going to be the, the outcome. Uh, with that, will justice be served? The, the drama around that was that it took so long for it took so long for that footage to come out. And the footage finally did come out. It was really it just it dropped really heavy and people kind of latched on to it. Uh, and it was very much uh, suppression. You know, people could see the suppression in terms of the Chicago Police Department um, trying to keep that from the public's view. But that is not the case uh, in Detroit right now. It's just a matter of where they're saying that, well, he tried to pull a weapon or he had a weapon or whatever it is. But still, the press there, from what I see, I've not seen much to, uh, to, to really go into this to open it up, uh, to give us more information. But I anticipate that since CARE is involved, um, that there's going to be some some movement uh, and 
we'll just, like I said, we'll just wait to see what comes about. Now, as this happens more and more, uh, what, what, what do I mean when I, when I say this happens? When people of color, black men, are gunned down. This was a brother. Brother Abdullah Beer was killed in his own home. Very much in the same fashion. I shouldn't say in the same fashion, but also uh, another brother who was also killed in his home. Both of Jean. And this took place in, this happened in Dallas. He was killed by uh, off-duty police officer Amber Geiger. And we're going to play just a little bit of the, his funeral just took place. And then we'll come back and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit. Jean celebrated his life Thursday. Both of them aimed high. His smile lit up a room. He was the guy you called anytime you needed anything. And talked about meeting him for the first time. I said, hit me with your real name, bro. He said, Botham Shim Jean. I said, Bo Bio, that's what it's going to be, bro. The 26-year-old was shot and killed one week ago by off-duty Dallas police officer Amber Geiger inside his own apartment. We as Americans, as humans, must turn away from the incivility that has rotted away at our interactions and not overreacting with deadly force. The 30-year-old officer told investigators that she mistakenly entered Jean's fourth floor apartment instead of hers on the third floor. Believing Jean to be a burglar, Geiger says after she gave verbal commands that were ignored, she fired her handgun twice, hitting him once in the torso. One of the things I would like is for Amber to just come clean. Before the funeral, the Jean family spoke to CBS News. Do you think she will get justice? Are you worried that she won't? That's my worry. The Dallas mayor and the city's police chief attended Thursday's service. Mourners spoke to the family directly. Please know that we stand with you as you search for accountability, and as you search for healing. A grand jury could ultimately decide to bump up the manslaughter charge Geiger faces to murder. Jean will be laid to rest in his native St. Lucia. Omar Villafranca, CBS News, Dallas. Now, you know what? Uh, well, first, we definitely pray for the well-being uh, of his family as they deal with this, this tragic uh, incident that is far too common across our country. Now, so one of the things that I found really distressing was that there seems to be an effort to paint Brother Botham as a as as a criminal and and I'm not I'm not I'm not grasping at straws, but based upon a story that my brother Ibrahim found, uh, and I looked at, and I think that's the direction that's going in. Tell us a bit about the about the story that that I'm I'm alluding to. Well, it was just a weird development in the story. Um, about almost a week ago, on September 14th, the Washington Post reports that the attorneys for the victim are saying that police uh, s- attempted to search his house mm-hmm. to find some amount of marijuana. And his uh, attorney, the victim's attorneys are saying that this was clearly an attempt to try to smear the victim and um, 
it's really I think the article itself also points out too that this is a common theme when it comes to black men being victimized by the police that during the process of an investigation there's a phase where uh, uh, there's an attempt to cast kind of a criminal light on the victim himself yeah um, and that's happening again now if if you have paid attention you will notice that if a man has a criminal record it doesn't matter how old he is it doesn't matter if um, if he was tried and acquitted it doesn't matter if he has if he has a mugshot and he has been the victim of police violence where his life has been taken you'd better believe that the first thing the first picture of him you're going to see is the one where he's posing for that mugshot so it's this real it's a really deliberate uh it's it's subtle for for some people because you don't realize the impact of what you're looking at so very much very much like um like this situation here where they talk about the police coming in to look for marijuana as if this somehow is going to justify him being shot in his own house that is absolutely crazy I'll quote one uh, little passage from the article. Yeah. Quote, it's not surprising, but it's telling. It's telling that in a homicide investigation, they went looking for drug paraphernalia, Merritt said. There could only be one purpose for that. The only purpose is to look for information to smear the dead. That is exactly their specific intent. Yeah. And and that's the MO. Now, what the mother asked for, the mother Asked for, she says she wants for Amber to come clean, right? And one of the one of the the people at the funeral, you heard, we heard him saying, "We stand with you as you look for accountability." Now, accountability. Well, that's a tall order, and accountability doesn't start with you. Don't get to accountability by first trying to justify what you did. Now, you know what? When's the last time you've seen, and it probably does happen, but I don't think it happens that often. It's not part of the, the regular script. When the, there's an officer-involved shooting, that the first thing that comes out is complaints against the officer. Um, I can't recall. I mean, just by recollection, it seems like Usually the officer is painted as, well, first of all, they're like, no, we're investigating, you know, they're trying to kind of neutralize the situation. But a lot of times, I don't have the statistics on this, but it seems yeah. like they try to paint the victim as like, oh, they might have been doing something wrong or, you know, details still to come out. Right, right. Yeah, it's the same song and dance uh, pretty much every time. So what what I also found interesting is that even though they've released this thing about him uh, uh, I think they said it was the land the landlord was with the police or something and they went to his apartment uh, or whatever but then they found out they said it was the smell of marijuana coming so that's why they were investigating and this is prior to him being uh, prior to him being killed in his own home 
uh, and nothing came of it. And they, and they said that it was actually it was someone else's apartment. It wasn't even his. So I think the, the department, not just this department, I think all the departments have the same response whenever one of them uh, messes up. The response is, well, let me try to figure out a way to clean up afterwards. Yeah, it's a form of damage control, basically, to deflect the attention away from the officers who were acting in, a, in an inappropriate way, in a, a murderous way in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're saying that a grand jury might, might uh, upgrade the charges from manslaughter to murder. But once again, it is not very often where the the harsher or the more uh, grave of the two uh, of charges is brought on it's what it's usually the lesser whatever whatever hurts less mm-hmm. so i really don't have much more on this other than to say that this happens far too often and we see the same responses from police departments across the country when it does happen it very it's very well, I shouldn't say rare. I just I, I don't know of I don't know of any occurrences where those that, that a police officer has been had been vilified in the same way that some victims absolutely. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't really think of that. Like look at Van Dyke for example. Yeah, um, it hasn't really been vilified. I saw some pictures of him on social media. Later, some old yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, but Much never at the time. It. Like after everything was said and done, mm. then older stuff started to surface. Yeah. But immediately being reported, you know, as the uh, events unfolded at first, mm. I don't think he was. Well, it, it falls, it, it runs parallel to this idea the same way we look at our servicemen and women. There's a, there's a similar campaign, well, just about the same campaign for those in law enforcement mm-hmm. where we, we turn them into heroes uh, and not to say that the job is not it is not uh, one to be appreciated right we need our first responders and law enforcement folks you know uh, every society does yeah but there's this notion that because the police play an important role and uh, most cops are good that that somehow excludes the possibility of this particular officer doing something wrong which right you know it doesn't make sense yeah uh, I mean because we also need we need doctors Right. We need teachers and we need uh, tool and die machinists and construction workers. So, uh, yeah, so it turns into a, a form of hero. I don't want to say hero uh, worship, but they, they're put on a pedestal as opposed to also looking at this is a person who made a career choice. You know, they've got a, a steady income, probably pretty good benefits, uh, a lot of social privilege that comes along with that. Uh, and nobody volunt. Well, I shouldn't say that because there are some folks. I do recall uh, instances where departments say they've had auxiliary police officers, so they're not full time, uh, but they get a badge, mm-hmm. and they get to carry a gun. And for some people, that's enough. That's that's pretty <laughs> scary, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's as as prevalent in some of, in, in the major cities. It's it's not, yeah, but no, you're smaller. Not. Smaller, um, you know, munis- uh, municipalities. I don't think like it's that. Just reminds that me of the man who shot Trayvon. Yeah, um, he wanted he he 
envisioned himself playing this kind of role as kind of a citizen's arrest kind of um, thing you know there's this kid in the neighborhood I haven't seen him before or whatever so he follows him mm-hmm. and he really tries to play the role of a basically like a police officer in yeah. his mind yeah and and that's also that's also telling too because there are a lot of there are a lot of police officers who are that guy they're the same guy right. but they folk by whatever you know chance of uh, of, of fate you know however you know a lot chose for it to work out they they got onto the department but it's a lot of those guys too who would do the job for free right just to have that power just to be able to to have power over somebody else or exert it you know and it don't know it doesn't always work out like that but uh yeah he's yeah i think that's that's a really good that's a really good point so uh, I don't know what's going to come of this. Yeah, I don't know. All right, folks, look, we're going to take a short break. This is Radio Slam. We're on WCEV 1450 AM. We'll be back in a minute. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to follow us on social media. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. So, in current events, um, the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Baig, recently attended a function. It's like a workshop, right? At yes, uh, City Bureau. It's a workshop. All right. Shout out to our, our, our friends over at yeah, City Bureau. Yeah, good friends at City Bureau on the south side. Um, now, this is, it, it kind of goes off of what we were talking about in the last segment. Mm-hmm. Um, has to do with racism. Okay. Okay, now the workshop was basically about coaching people how to cover uh, race issues in the media. Um, and there was a group there which they brought in called uh, Chicago United for Equity. Okay. 
Uh, it's a newly formed, pretty new group. Now, what they did, which I found really useful, is to break down racism into different levels uh, as it pertains to the way it proliferates in our society. So there's kind of like a chart, you know, there's... Well, first of all, they started talking about the difference between uh, equality and equity, mm. right? And they, show, they showed a picture of, uh, I guess it's like a famous meme or whatever now. Yeah. Um, three people standing by a fence trying to watch a baseball game. Three different heights, right? One person is tall, one person is medium height. One person is uh, like short, like a young kid. Mm-hmm. And they say equality is giving them all like one box to stand on, right? Mm-hmm. So the t- so it's, it doesn't change anything. Right, because they they're not even to begin with. Equity is giving the shortest person the most boxes, medium height person, you know, one or two boxes to stand on, and the tallest person who can already see over the fence doesn't get one. That's the difference between equality and equity. Right. Um, I thought that was pretty cool, <laughs> a pretty powerful example. Right. We often forget that when we talk about equality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, e- equity is a little bit different. Right now, you know, some folks are gonna immediately go to um, each according to his uh, was each according to his ability, mm-hmm. and wow, I know this like by heart, and I can't say it right now, but it's basically it's it's one of the credos of communism, oh, okay. right? So you you give what you are capable of of, of giving, and you get what you need, mm-hmm. and that is. I mean, it makes sense, right? But as soon as you put a name on it, if you put the name on it, people automatically will. Right. Some people will back away. But yes, but I think that's a great that's a great way to look at that. Um, so the point being that not everyone in our country can be expected to um, be coming off of the same reference point or the same situation as far as the educational system goes, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, they also eventually talked about, I guess tying into that, different levels of racism, different uh, layers of racism. Mm-hmm. So on an individual level, you have people which are basically... Now, this is basically what they told I, I think we need to get them on the show too, okay. uh, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. Um, but I found it very helpful in the way they, ex- they explain this because a lot of times we talk about institutional racism uh systemic racism what does it actually mean you know a lot of us we have kind of a vague notion of what it means right Right. but to break down in a way where it makes it more specific i think it helps a lot in labeling each situation and diagnosing each situation so on the individual level um there's internalized prejudice bias racism etc uh what each individual feels, basically, right? Mm-hmm. To be brief. And then on the institutional level, so if there's an institution, give me an example of an institution like the city of Chicago's... Um, University of Chicago. Okay, fine. University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be an institution. Now, within that institution, what are the policies um, that... and What are the policies made by people and implemented by people who might harbor certain kinds of bias, right? And how the individual is affected by that. That's like institutional racism. Um, Can I add something to that? Yes. Um, So I think this is very relevant to the prior two segments. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, if you think about the, the law enforcement, think about the police departments, right, as an institution, how its policies are crafted, mm-hmm. and how, not just how they're crafted, but how the resources are deployed. Yeah. And you follow that train of thinking, and you see how policies can affect life and death. Right. Right. When you deploy 80% of your resources into 30% of the population, then that's where all of your, the majority of your activity is going to take place. Um, and then further, furthermore, criminalizing uh, black and brown men it's also going to it's, it's going to have an impact on those people that work in that system that are part of that institution. So yeah, so that systemic institute that systemic race, racism, how it bleeds down into uh, individual uh, perspectives and, and choices. Mm-hmm. It's, that's real. Yeah, going along, I think that's a very good example that we can stick to since we were just talking about that. Mm-hmm. So on an individual level, say it's the officer, right? Mm-hmm. Or the even like the dispatcher maybe, uh, and then on a systemic level, institutionally systemic would be like the P- police department, CPD or Detroit PD or whatever, right? right? So this department, this institution is made up of individuals, and that leads to certain policies, which are biased for or against certain people, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what about structural racism? How would you hypothesize, just to take take a um, structural guess. racism? Um, are we talking about uh, just give me gov- the government apparatus um, itself, uh-huh. or um, agencies? Yeah, um, you know, and how they function in terms of uh, department of uh, department of what is it? Children and Family Services or Health mm-hmm. and Human Services, mm-hmm. uh, things of that nature. Uh, there's a. It's been long talked about how changes in the the occupation for for homes uh, that the, a single change pushed men out of the home for women to be able to receive welfare, and that it had, uh, you know, it had a, a ripple effect that has been set down generations, you know, yeah. within the home. So removing black men from from their homes and, uh, for, and and disrupting the black family there's a structural uh racist uh racism you know the, that was a decision somebody made to say you can't be in the house yeah you're getting close mm-hmm. very close that's basically i mean when we when we uh think of structural racism yeah we think of it just as we define it as something that's very high up a ceiling right mm-hmm. above a certain group of people yeah uh the government for example you know um but now defining it this way i felt was like, incredibly helpful um now we talked about institutional racism mm-hmm. which is also on the systemic level structural racism is when the impact of many institutions together is felt by the individual so for example the police department right now there's a police department that goes in and shoots an unarmed person right mm-hmm. um 
after that, the uh, the state's attorney comes, who's not a part of the police department. Now, in the state's attorney's office, there's also these individuals that are harboring biases, for example, right? Right. Now, that is one institution. The police department is another institution. When these two in- institutions interact together in a way that is biased against some people, that is structural uh, bias, structural racism. Right. So, for also to give another example, the police give you a ticket, right? And then you have to go to the courthouse to pay the ticket, right? right? And uh, that's the story. This is an example that people at the workshop actually gave. Oh, we, really? We were actually putting it. It was beautiful because we were putting two and two together, like as we go along, and real, you know. Yeah. Uh, I love when, I love that kind of learning process when you're learning right there, like live. You know, mm-hmm. putting two and two together. That sticks with you. Yeah, it does. So, for example, you get a ticket on your car because you live in uh, Inglewood, for example. And uh, police are, whoever is ticketing is more biased towards targeting people in, those, in that area, right? Which mm-hmm. has been proven, by the way, in, in various uh, investigative reports. Yeah. And then you go to the courthouse, and then the court tells you, oh, you have a warrant out, right? This is now getting to different institutions, the way they interact with each other. And that produces a structural scenario now. Yeah. So the police shoot somebody, then the state's attorney comes and says, we're going to investigate this victim's house to see if they had any marijuana stashed there, right? Mm-hmm. Two different institutions interacting together, impacting the individual. That's structural now. And, and that used to just be referred to, and it still is referred to by some, as the man. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says, you know, they're talking about the man, that's exactly what they're talking about. This yeah. ever presence of, you know, it's, it's relentless. There's no way to get off from underneath this. You you find the man everywhere, you know, in yes. every corner. Yes, but see, when you don't articulate it in a very precise and uh, well-defined way. You just sound paranoid. Right. <laughs> it's, difficult, it's difficult to convince anyone, right? Yeah. Um, but once you can break it down in a, in a very systematic way and define it in a very clear way, mm-hmm. then it starts to uh, have a definite, uh, a bigger impact. You know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and the same could be said for uh, when you and when you start to when you start to think that way, then you are able to connect these connect these dots. Uh, you look at food deserts, mm-hmm. uh, and there's one place. Uh, what was I watching? I was watching. Um, Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. And these guys, they came up, their idea is something about being able to provide food to folks wherever they are. And I think they were in L.A. And what they did is they they said that we sell our, you know, they got chefs and stuff. They package everything and they put it in the restaurants. And they had a kind of a sliding scale. So in the more affluent areas, they sold their stuff at higher uh, rates. And in you know, economically depressed communities, they sold them at lower rates. Uh, but one of the, the statistics that they brought out, they said that there's a five-mile difference between this um, uh, uh, economically depressed community and this affluent community. Five miles. It says, but the life expectancy is a, is a 12-year difference in life expectancy. Yeah. It says the community that has the food desert you know that's where you know they're living twelve years long uh, less than the community where they have choices for healthy food, 
And to be able to look at something like that, and that's replicated around the country. You know, we have food deserts here in, in you know, Chicago. Um, but to see that there's a structural element to that, and whether it be lack of investment dollars, public or private, uh, a willingness to um, uh, education, you know, around uh, around healthy foods, uh, you know, there uh, crime and you know just there, there's there's a, a whole a whole litany of things that come together, and it looks like it's it's just we're missing a grocery store, but there's a whole there there are a whole slew of reasons. That's a symptom. An activist, yes, ab- absolutely. Yeah, you know, we look at the the south and west side, west side, west side especially, because it's been. You know, it's been under uh, developed for a long time, mm-hmm. but that's a, that's a decision, and that comes from that's that's a structural, that's that's a part of that whole. It's an impact of various institutions yeah. uh, combining together to have an impact on the people of the, of the West Side, for example. Yeah, the financial yeah. sector, mm-hmm. the public. You know, the um, educational private, sector. Educate, right? yeah. Then you go to a bank to try to get a loan, and what happens? Mm-hmm. Right? If you're from this neighborhood, you have a certain income level, right? You're not yeah. going to get that. It's like your insurance is higher if you live in certain zip codes, mm-hmm. uh, which means you've you know, got less the, money. One of the most mind blowing things always about Chicago. What's that? Um, and even I noticed this when I was little is just the um, almost. The arbitrariness of the boundaries, mm. um, like especially if you look at the the mo- the two most famous uh, places in Chicago, one of them famous for being the most affluent, and one of them famous for being the like the worst, most poorest uh, neighborhood in the city. Right, the Magnificent Mile and Cabrini Green. Oh, that's not poor no more. <laughs> not anymore, right? I'm talking about before. Oh, you mean back in the day? Okay. How it was such a, a such a, a such a mind blowing disparity. Like the the gem of the city, so to speak, the magnificent mile, yep. and then Cabrini Green, one of the most lowest income uh, housing projects, well, like a world famous housing project. Basically, yep. even if you remember the uh, Jane the intro, Byrne. Jane Byrne, yeah. But even if you remember the intro to Good Times, yeah, right. You could see the the Hancock Tower and everything in the background when they're like when they're showing people on the street yeah that's just so mind blowing to me and that's not the only place mm-hmm. so I always feel like there's also this due to all this um systemic uh systemic inputs right these these arbitrary lines and boundaries that are drawn there's a psychological boundary that takes shape too um which is really a I agree, and I don't. Th- they're not arbitrary at all. Arbitrary means like there's a street, and once you cross that street, now you're in like a totally different place. Yeah, but see, if you follow viaducts, if you follow bridges mm-hmm. uh, and expressways, then those are generally the markers. I mean, yeah, you will have some sometimes where it literally is from this street to the next street. Yeah, right? that's what I mean. Yeah. But in some places, okay, there's the highway, there's a train track. But those, yeah. but but those occurrences where it is the highway, it's the train tracks, it's the, um, you know, it's it's the viaduct. Those are more. I think they are more 
uh, those are present in, 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 in abundance more so. I mean, you can, you can go, what's a good street to think about? Um, it's like state street back when all of the, uh, all of the projects when Robert, Robert Taylor Mm -hmm. projects were up. Um, and what was the real, the divider was 55. Right. I actually had a friend who grew up in Bridgeport and, uh, So they were on the other side of the highway, mm-hmm. right, by the Comiskey and everything. Yeah. And they never went that. They never went east, you know, mm-hmm. to because once you go east, then it's like a whole different area. Yeah. Uh, I think they went to Chinatown like a little bit, mm-hmm. but even that, not really. You just kind of like, stayed in your own place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Chicago, uh, our famous slogan: "A city of neighborhoods." Mm-hmm. Um, means you stay in your little your little area and then there were a lot of there were consequences um, I remember my mother telling me about how I was because she grew up in Stateway Gardens uh, and it was a lot different the projects were they were not what they are well, at least what they were uh, and well they were marked the projects were marketed in, in like in the post-war era as like a peaceful uh, middle class there were there literally there were doctors and lawyers living in Robert Taylor in Robert Taylor homes so uh, yeah it was not what it is uh, or at least what it became to be and what I I remember growing up um, uh, seeing but yeah there there are boundaries there are lines that are drawn and and if you don't know what those lines are you know, it can it can cost you, um, and I don't know how bad it is because I mean I, I haven't I don't walk I don't walk around like you know like I did as a, as a teenager. Right. But, now, when I say the difference was arbitrary, I don't mean that it wasn't deliberate. Yeah. Right. I mean that geographically speaking, mm-hmm. what is stopping someone from this neighborhood from going to the other neighborhood? You know. Okay. Like, I very you. very little. Yeah. But there's a psychological blockade there. Mm-hmm. Where these people stay over here and these people stay over here. Well, historically, that it, there's been violence behind that. Mm. So I don't think it's just psychologically. I think there was something that happened that that literally was okay. If you cross this line, then your life is in jeopardy. Right. So it just becomes a part of the. It becomes part of the the, the culture uh, of the people. I don't think we hear enough about those types of incidents. We hear. A little bit about race riots and things like that, but the but I think there's a lot that has that has transpired that has never made the news. Uh, you know, there's it's not in the books, but it cemented it it, it cemented the behavior that you know it, it became a part of how people how people live in these little areas. With, with never a thought of, of going any further you know so definitely I uh, want to give a shout out to our friends over at City Bureau City Bureau and also uh, Chicago Chicago United for Equity okay. was the uh, special guest that night yeah we have to so, get them in here yeah we gotta get them in here and uh, everyone who is currently pursuing journalism or is interested in being a journalist check out City Bureau's uh, public newsroom which happens pretty much every Thursday 
usually at their uh, like base, which is right there on 6100 Blackstone, I think. Yeah, Blackstone. And once in a while, they move it around to uh, different locations, depending on the guests or spe- guest speakers or um, whatever's going on that day. So go to their website. Good friends of ours. Shout out. It. Yep. City Bureau. All right, Radio Sound family. It is that time. We have overstayed our welcome. Thank you for tuning in. Thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. Thank our engineer and studio, the impressive one, assistant producer, Ibrahim Baig. I'm your host, Tariq el Obviously, the two of us have produced this show today. Um, our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and are to be taken as a representation of sound vision. And with that, we are going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Thank you.